So thank you, everyone. Thank you for being here, and thank you for your practice. Sometimes for some of us who come regularly to sitting groups, or when we do anything regularly, the mind sort of slides over the event, you know, like putting the kettle on to make a cup of tea. And um, so sometimes I found myself coming to um, sitting groups, at least in the early years of my practice, and um, <coughs> taking them for granted. and. Increasingly, I take our groups coming together less for granted and more for an occasion to acknowledge the power of what we're doing and how memorable it is each time we come together to practice. And I do so in the acknowledgement of what's happening in the world, and that every time we <coughs> practice, our practice is in a way an acknowledgement of what's going on in the world, of what's going on in Ethiopia and Afghanistan and Iraq and um, in the West Bank, and, um, and here in this country on the streets of our big cities. And I find that acknowledgement such a profound inspiration for my practice and for our practice, because every time we come together, we offer ourselves in the world a different vision and possibility of how to be and of how to live. And even if that was just one moment of mindfulness, that moment is so radical. In fact, the Buddha said one moment of mindfulness is more important than living a hundred years without it because it is a moment of purity. It is a moment of knowing. And in that knowing comes the conditions for making choices in our life. And we couldn't make those choices without that moment of mindfulness. And why is it so radical to be here? Because we are sitting for all the people who don't have that moment of choice, for the different conditions in their lives where there isn't mindfulness. And because there isn't mindfulness, there isn't the capacity to make that choice, <coughs> the choice of healing, the choice of 
and ethical living, the choice of turning towards the heart rather than away from it. And so it just feels profoundly memorable and calls for great celebration to again sit here with you. So. Um, I also <laughs> um, wanted to say that I have two herniated discs and a chip of one of the herniated discs has floated um, from L5 to L3 and is lodged against the nerve bulb there. So that, uh, that is why I'm lying down because um, it's less painful and so I'm going to start this talk sitting up. If the pain becomes too strong, then I'll um, give the Dharma talk in the reclining position. <laughs> so I, um, because we're um, um, entering into the uh, season of um, Hanukkah and Christmas and solstice and the um, Kwanzaa and the other, other celebrations that are part of this year. I wanted to start this evening with a story um, that Ruth Dennison, my root teacher, told me. And it comes from a question when I asked her, what was her most profound meditative experience? And for those of you who don't know, she trained with Ubekin, who is the same teacher that empowered Goenka. And um, she had described many, uh, um, many occasions her training with Ubekin. She trained in his meditation center in Rangoon, and she trained in a room, it was kind of like a concrete room, um, five foot by 10 foot, very, very small cell. And, um, she, she was in that cell pretty much 24-7, apart from when she went out to eat. And the instruction would be Ubekin coming in the morning, opening the door before he went to work. He was the equivalent of, um, the, he was the general secretary of finance and various other departments. He was actually a very big wig in the Burmese government. He would open the door before he went to work and say, Anicca, Anicca, and then close the door. <laughs> and that's the Pali word for impermanence or change, and that was the instruction for the day. <laughs> so she talks about all the challenges and rigors that she went through with her training with Ubekin, and so I thought that she would maybe say something about that time when she was with him for three months or subsequent times, but she didn't. What she, what she said is that her husband, Henry, who um, came from a family who had a lot of shares in the Santa Fe Railways, so had some money, um, had married her. And after a number of years, had come to her and said, you know, Ruchen, I want to give you a really special gift that's been a family heirloom. And even though we're married, there was some part of me that didn't feel ready to give this to you, but now I do. And he presented her with this very exquisite 
diamond and sapphire and ruby ring that was worth a lot of money. And she was very touched because they had, um, although they were married, a somewhat independent relationship, and the fact that he was giving her this very special family heirloom meant a great deal to her. And it felt like an acknowledgement of her really being received into this quite classy family. She had come from a, a very ordinary middle-class family in Germany, and so this was a sort of big deal. Soon after this gift, she and Henry decided to go on a vacation to Mexico, and they decided to take a train. And so they were on the train going, uh, going down um, into the southern part of Mexico, and she looked at her ring and thought, you know, it might not be such a great idea to be traveling with this really fancy ring on my finger. Um, I think I'll put it in my handbag. So she put it in the handbag and then realizes she wants to go to the toilet. And she says to Henry, Henry, I put the ring in my handbag and I'm going to the toilet, so keep an eye on it. She goes into the toilet, and because she's such a dedicated practitioner, she decided to do some walking meditation up and down the halls. And one of the things that w inspired me to study with her is that there really wasn't a separation between retreat time and non-retreat time. I, I spent many months with her outside of retreat format, and she was diligent about practicing all the time. So she was walking up and down the corridor. Meanwhile, this very young, handsome man comes into their compartment, dressed in a white silk suit, and sits down and starts talking with Henry. And he's very charming. And he's talking and talking and talking, and Henry starts to drift off. Someone, le someone later, Ruth gets a sort of inkling. I think I should go back to the compartment. So she goes back to the compartment, and she sees Henry happily asleep snoring. And this man, almost, you know, four fifths out of the window with her handbag. And she watches him as he sort of tumbles down onto the ground and starts running with her handbag. And she said, in that moment seeing him, she wished that he might not suffer any negative karma from stealing her handbag. And she said, it just that wish just came into her mind. And in that profound letting go of the ring and everything in her handbag, her mind opened. And, um, and I, I felt very touched by that. And, and I felt very touched about that vision of how we relate to our things. And I um, have recently moved here. And I have a mosaic that I actually created of um, Tara. She's a green Tara, but sitting on flames. And I spent a long time actually making it. 
And I've been contemplating my green Tara because it, although it isn't sapphire and gold and a, a, a gold ring with jewels, I really love it. I, <laughs> I love it a lot. And um, I know you're, when, when you make things, you're, maybe you're supposed to, in England anyway, sort of be offhand about it and not say publicly that you love the things that you make. <laughs> But I actually love this Tara that I've made, and that she sits centrally without shame on my altar. And, um, and I, I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about what it would mean to lose her, and about Achen Cha's um, invitation when someone said to him, you know, um, um, Bante, I notice you ha use the same cup for your tea all the time. And, and um, Achen Cha said, yes, it's my favorite cup. And every day, I drink from it as though it were already broken. And I think about that relationship uh, to Tara and to my other things. And as I was thinking about that, I thought, I'd like to invite you to imagine what it would be like if you were in your house or your home or your room, um, and to imagine everything being broken, the pictures, the bed, your lamp, your teacup, uh, your clothes, ripped. And as I imagined it for myself, I was like, Wow, I remember when I lived in monasteries for two years and I lived out, a suit, out of a suitcase, so I really didn't own anything. And um, what it was like. And it had a similar feeling to imagining everything in my room, including my Tara being broken, because I realized that what was left was my heart. That even though I loved my Tara and everything else, what I realized in loving my Tara and loving the sweater, which my ex gave me many years ago and as, um, when we were still together, and so it carries all kinds of stories and incidents, that it's not really the thing that's so important, but my love of it and that my love resides in my heart. And that no matter what we have or what we don't have, we have a heart that always has the capacity to love. And this reminds me of um, the many times actually I've hung out in pubs. I lived 12 years in London, and in London you hang out in pubs not so much even for the drinking, because there's um, most of us drank bitter, and I don't know if any of you have been in England and drank bitter, but it's like 2% alcohol, and it's like in this big glass, so you're sort of drinking liquid more than you're drinking alcohol, and it's really just a place to get together. And partly it's a class thing, because a lot of the homes, if you if you don't have money, a lot of our homes weren't that comfortable. And so you went to the pub because you were warm, and um, the big thing, and, um, and it was a place to hang out with your neighborhood. So anyway, you're hanging out, and you get to 
chat with all these people that you wouldn't normally chat with. And I can't tell you how many times I have ended up in conversations with people who fought in the Second World War who said it was one of the best times in their life. And, and it would always be amazing for me to hear it. And I would say, why? And they said, because we were really there for each other. I mean, they didn't use that expression. But that's what they were talking about, where the normal constraints, that social constraints that we have between each other would fall away because there was such a necessity for us to be with each other and to help each other and to work for each other. And they said that even though there was so much death and so much deprivation, it was actually a really special time for them. That acknowledgement, again, of really it doesn't matter what the conditions are. What matters is what's happening in our heart. And I think of it too because I actually am quite disabled at the moment. I can't cook for myself. I can't stand really for very long. I can't walk for very long. I've kind of been hanging out in my bed for weeks. And so I've been very dependent on the Sangha to come and bring me food. And it's been such a it's been such a challenge to let go of that place of thinking I should be able to do it by myself. And such a challenge to receive the generosity that's been given to me. I mean, in a way it's it's living on dana is an incredible challenge because when you're paid for something there isn't the same invitation to really receive it with an open heart as there is with dana it it's such vulnerability to receive gifts in that kind of way and being sick only intensifies that because we know that when we're really sick, we can't do it by ourselves. And what it means not only to ask someone to um, bring a meal, but actually to keep asking someone to fill the kettle with water and to pour it and to carry my teacup because I can't actually even carry a teacup for long because any weight presses down on the, on, on, on the spine and then that presses down on the... I don't exactly understand. I read the MRI report about why that bit of disc is lodged by the nerve, but anyway, the result is that I can't carry any weight at all. And, um, and I think of the refuge of Sangha and what it really means, because we chanted it, you know, what it really means to renounce trying to do it by ourselves and the kinds of social distance we keep with each other because we think we have to do it by ourselves 
and what it means to let go enough to really receive what we give to each other, to really receive it, just our presence now, you know, that we are not alone, and to receive that someone turned to us and said hello, to receive the matter that is given to each one of us by our friends or our pets or our um, community or however it is, to really receive it. So because we're entering into a period of receiving, of, of really receiving, and the gifts that we receive, however we might name them, is not so much about the gift but about our heart and our capacity to receive. I wanted to read this. I wanted to actually re um, read two things. This, um, I'm going to lie down to, to read it. We waste so much energy trying to cover up who we are when beneath every attitude is the want to be loved and beneath every anger is a wound to be healed and beneath every sadness is the fear that there will not be enough time. When we hesitate in being direct, we unknowingly slip something on, some added layer of protection that keeps us from feeling the world. And often that thin covering is the beginning of a loneliness, which, if not put down, diminishes our chances for joy. It's like wearing gloves every time we touch something and then forgetting we choose to put them on, we complain that nothing feels quite real. In this way, our challenge each day is not to get dressed to face the world, but to unglove ourselves so that the doorknob feels cold and the car handle feels wet and the kiss goodbye feels like the lips of another being, soft and unrepeatable. Someone gave it to me without an author. And <laughs> so it might be some of you <laughs> um, actually might come across it and then please email me <laughs> and let me know. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so I think about I think about the glove and the way we glove ourselves and the way we armor ourselves. And I think about how often we talk about stress and being stressed. And, and I wonder what your thoughts are about checking in and seeing if the stress that we feel in our lives is actually not about how much we do, but that we're carrying the armor of the gloving ourselves, of this I can do it alone, of this kind of social distance, and that it is the weight of carrying the armor that's so exhausting, rather than how much we're doing. Because um, 
I was in Kathmandu studying with Sokni Rinpoche in his monastery in Ossaling for six weeks. And there, were, there was a number of days when I would hang out with Sokni and, we, and we, we would be like, it would be like one thing after the other. You know, we'd go to this house to bless it and then we had to meet these people for lunch and then this and that and then he had to give a talk. And I mean, you know, like really busy. And I said to him at the end of the day, because I was exhausted, I said, so, are you tired? He said, no, no, I'm not tired. And I think of a really lovely simile that John Bradshaw, do you remember John Bradshaw? He was like really big in the 12-step um, program. Um, he gave a, a, a or told a story that really stuck with me. And it, it was about someone, I mean, it wasn't a real life story, it was a, a simile of what he was teaching, of someone in the middle of an ocean drowning, coming up for air, drowning, coming up for air, drowning. And a boat comes along and sees that this person is struggling. And they also see that this person is holding a big, iron weight ball, so no wonder they're drowning. And so the person on the boat says, drop the ball, drop it. You know, and the person struggling says, but I've been holding on to it my whole life. <laughs> and that's how we feel. And, you know, and I want to acknowledge that it's not so easy that to have an open and vulnerable heart to drop our defenses is, is it's not easy, otherwise we would all already be undefended. So really we're talking about an invitation to practice rather than an expectation of lightening our load. So opening our hearts and becoming more vulnerable to each other. And I had someone bring me lunch today and we were chatting and she turned to say <coughs> goodbye and she said, you know, she said, you know, you're really amazing. And I watched my mind turn away a little bit because it's so vulnerable to receive that. And the reality is that we all are amazing because we're alive, because we're alive and we're human beings. And so when I pass it on to you, because I know that it's true to say that each one of you are amazing, is it possible to really open up and to receive that. Because that's what it means to drop the ball. And when we open in that way, we become real Sangha. Because then we really are receiving the true reflection back that we give each other. Of course there are times when we lose it. Of course, there are times when we're irritable or angry or hating or envious. Of course, there are times when someone's talking to us and internally we're saying, oh, just shut up. You know, 
lost there those times because we have history, we have conditioning, we live in this culture. That isn't the important part of our reflection. The important part of our reflection is the vision and the intention that each one of us carries in our hearts that brought us here today. It is where we're aligning our minds. And I know that each one of us is aligning our minds to that which is beautiful, to kindness, to matter, to presence, to an open and vulnerable heart, to determination and truthfulness, to the capacity to renounce, to generosity. I know that is where each one of us is aligned. And it is that alignment that makes us beautiful. It is also that capacity, and I know again that each one of us has it here because we've already practiced it, to fall out of alignment, to forget, and then to pick ourselves up again and to realign in the same ways that when we meditate and we've aligned ourselves to connecting with our breath and we forget, we bring ourselves back. I don't know about you, but I've probably done that a million times. Forget, forgotten, come back, forgotten, come back, forgotten, come back. You know, and, and the forgetting isn't important because of course we're for, we forget. We're, we're not fully enlightened. We're in training, so of course we forget. What is important is that we remember and we come back. And that's why we're here. And that's the true reflection of our beauty. You know, so when the Buddha, and I forget which sutta um, it was, when he said, I want you to go to the marketplace and to see that in the marketplace someone has been murdered and to come back to your room, and he, he says this, to come back, sit on your bed, and reflect that you haven't murdered anyone. And then he says, I want you to go into the marketplace and see where someone has stolen something, and then to come back and sit on your bed and reflect that you haven't stolen anything, that you haven't taken what has not been freely offered. And I want you to go into the marketplace and see where someone has been raped, and to come back and to reflect that you haven't raped. And I want you to go to the marketplace and see where someone has lied and spoken inappropriately and unkindly, and reflect that you speak kindly. And, he, and, and I want you to go to the marketplace and see where someone's been so drunk that they've committed, um, uh, they've They've not practiced any of the precepts, that they have killed or fought or um, hurt someone or stolen in some way. That practice has been an amazing practice for me because I listen to the news and I read the newspapers, probably like most of us, and I see what's going on in the world and I take it as such a reflection of my own beauty. 
it is such a reflection of the profound blessings of the Dharma and of our practice and of our maturity that, and I'm just assuming this because I know some of us might have fought in wars, so that at least for now, you know, at least for today, that none of you have killed anyone. And really reflecting on the power of that, on the power of the virtue inside of you and of the strength in your heart that you haven't killed someone, that you haven't, I'm assuming this again, been part of a Ponzi scheme and stashed away millions of dollars or billions of dollars, that you haven't raped someone today. These are really beautiful reflections in terms of seeing ourselves truly as we are. And this isn't about, oh, I'm so cool. You know, it isn't about that at all. It's actually the practice in the Satipatthana Sutta of general comprehension. Because every time we comprehend something like, oh, I just came back from a moment of distraction, we actually support mindfulness. And when we comprehend our beauty and our beautiful qualities, we actually support them. It is a way to strengthen the heart so that the heart might continue to open. Because when we are identified with the negative energies, we are less likely to be able to receive. And this is a special time of reception. And that capacity to receive depends on our own capacity to know our goodness and our beauty so that we might receive. So, um, let's see, let me... This is uh, a part of the part of receiving back from Hafiz. Our union is like this. You feel cold, so I reach for a blanket to cover our shivering feet. A hunger comes into your body, so I run to my garden and start digging potatoes. You ask for a few words of comfort and guidance. I quickly kneel at your side offering you this whole book as a gift. You ache with loneliness one night, so much you weep, and I say, here's a rope. Tie it around me. I will be your companion. <laughs> so I would like to invite you, um, actually, to break into groups of three or four, and to, um, to take, um, a, few, to take a, a, let's, a few minutes apiece um, to, share, um, to share two things for each of you. What is your single biggest obstacle to opening and receiving? And um, what do you consider one of your greatest blessings? One of the things that you consider beautiful about yourself.
so becoming vulnerable with each other and sharing in this way. Um, and I know it's easy to split the scene because you're like, oh, look, she's given her talk now. I want to go home. But I really would like to invite you to stay and um, to participate. So groups of three or four. And, and better to do it with people you don't know uh, than people you know. So just to turn and... Um, Um, uh, probably about 10, 10 minutes. Uh, ten, yeah. And, it, you know, yeah. person can you switch off the tape then with the tape is. can you share what is um, most difficult about opening and receiving and then what you think your greatest blessing is
couple more minutes. So just take a um, just take a few minutes to just take a few minutes to check in and see if any any of you would like to share how that was any learning from the. Dharma talk or, um, or from sharing in your group if anything struck you. Yes, right in front. Could you say your name? My name's Sarah, and um, really just such a wonderful talk uh-huh. to receive. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. Really, really, really wonderful. Uh-huh. And um, the, the really the sentence that I'm just going to treasure forever is just kind of shifting the idea of sangha or the felt sense of sangha as the renunciation of being on our own. And there's just a tremendous um, amount of relief in my spirit as I hear that and really take that in. And um, So thank you so much for opening that. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. My name is Larry, and uh, I've, al- I've always hated war. I've almost pr- 
pride, pride myself on hating war, like it's useless, it's hell. I've never heard anyone speak it positively, give it any positive reflection on war. And when you were talking about that, uh, it's just amazing to me that there's, there's almost nothing that's pure evil. There's always something good that's going on. And I, I have a, a new slant on war. Thank you. I'm Adam. Um, I just wanted to remark that this last process was really interesting to me because in talking about what was difficult to make ourselves vulnerable, it was the blockage of our own vulnerability. I was making myself vulnerable. And then in thinking about what was beautiful in me and what was um, blocking my ability to receive, I received affirmation about what a beautiful quality that was. So it was like the learning was in the process. Thank you. And hi, my name is Ray, and I feel really connected to this part of um, sitting for those who can't mm. sit or mm. who may not mm. have those moments of mindfulness. Mm. Mm. Um, I feel a deeper dedication to mm. my practice. Just remembering that, mm. and also thinking, talking about war, and just how you talk through this story of the Buddha going to the marketplace or sending his disciples to the marketplace and seeing someone murdered, and knowing that there's so much warfare and murder going on, and how many, um, just what an area of. Uh, of avoidance that generally I kind of like oh there's this war and yeah. I just push it right. but knowing yeah. that there are so <coughs> many or that I could sit for those who may not know yeah. that just don't that might grow up in these situations where they don't know they have a choice or they think this is what to do or to, to get through college and you end up in this war and how things can happen so fast and all of a sudden you're shooting someone and that that could be like just sit to be me sitting back. I'm just seeing some uh, new like very um, clear uh, connection to something I uh, usually put at such uh, a distance that uh, feels really mm. palpable. Mm. So mm. thank you. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. So then let's all stand up to share the merit of our time together and hold hands. Let's take hands. And you know, some but just across lines and so on and so forth.
lots of little circles. <laughs> So reflecting again on the blessings, the beautiful qualities of our practice, of our presence here, of our listening and our sharing, and offering the prayer that all the goodness that has come from this contributes to our well-being and the well-being of the world. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.